Chapter Twenty Seven A of Organic Evolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lisa Reichert. Organic Evolution by Richard Swan Lull. Chapter Twenty Seven A. Insects. Place in Nature. As the cephalopods are the culmination of the evolution of the unsegmented invertebrates, so the insects can be considered the final evolutionary goal of those whose bodies are segmented, the so-called articulates of Cuvier. The most primitive members of this great group are of course the annelid worms, out of which there arose, sometime in the remote past, the primitive crustacea, or trilobites, and from this stock not only the later crustacea, but two phyla of air-breathing arthropods. The latter include the most remotely related arachnoids, scorpions, spiders, extinct marostomata, and the relic horseshoe crabs, not all of which, however, are air-breathing. The nearest allies to the insects, on the other hand, are the myriapoda, millipedes and centipedes, which, while of a lower order of development, show many features in common with insects. Definition Insects may be defined as air-breathing arthropods, in which the body is divided into three distinct regions, the head, thorax, and abdomen. There is a pair of legs borne upon each of the three segments of the thorax, and generally two pairs of wings, arising from segments two and three. The head, which shows no external trace of segmentation, bears a pair of feelers or antennae, compound and simple eyes, and three pairs of mouth-parts, the mandibles and the first and second pair of maxillae, although the last are more or less united into a single organ, the labium or lower lip. The abdomen, consisting of eight or nine segments, is generally devoid of appendages in the adult. None of the insects are organically united or colonial, and but few are sedentary, although many are parasitic in habits, and hence degenerate. The sexes are entirely separate, and the development of the young is often complicated by a more or less profound metamorphosis. IMPORTANCE AND NUMBERS From the standpoint of their importance, the insects may be placed next to mankind, the only possible disputants being the ungulate mammals, and their significance is not so much from the viewpoint of nature as from that of man. The insects, however, may be considered important from either point of view. Their numbers exceed computation, for Kellogg tells us that while there are less than 1,000 different bird species in North America, there are more than 10,000 known species of beetles alone and the total number of named and described species of insects in the world is about 300,000. This is so far, however, from being the ultimate number which the world contains, especially in the teeming tropical forests, that L. O. Howard estimated them at perhaps 3,500,000, and when one multiplies this number by the possible number of individuals of each kind, necessarily variable, he arrives at figures as incomprehensible as the years of geologic time. Weigh the importance of such an army from the standpoint of its devastation, for it lives on the country, 
and every mouth must be filled many, many times. The tax imposed by the insects on mankind alone through their destruction of crops and of raw materials and manufactured products, food, tobacco, drugs, leathers, textiles, buildings, amounts to untold millions of dollars each year. They are the only forms of life which seriously threaten man's earthly supremacy, and while individually their devastations are of little moment, collectively their constant attrition may ultimately affect local conquests in which man will have to confess himself beaten. In addition to the general destructiveness of insects, we have to charge against their general account the direct sufferings of humanity caused by insect-carried diseases, some of which are discussed in the chapter on parasitism, and these sufferings in many instances terminate only in death. But over against this terrible arraignment may be placed to their credit the direct aid of the beneficial insects in the fight against their noxious allies, and the very great service that many of them give in the pollination and consequent fructifying of the plants, many of which, like the red clover, are important food crops for man or for his beasts. This pollination has given rise to some intricate adaptations on the part of plants themselves to ensure the visits of the fertilizing insects, and to enable the pollen to be unconsciously obtained in one flower and left where it will surely impregnate another. To these should be added those insects that are of direct benefit to man, such as the honey-bee, cochineal, and lac insects. Habitat The habitat of the insects is as variable as one can conceive of, covering practically the entire range of animal habitat, with the exception of the deep sea. Among free-living insects there are terrestrial ones, ranging from alpine wastes to the steaming tropical jungles, from the snowfields of the Arctic to the evergreen forests beneath the equator, and from the driest deserts to the most humid regions of the world. They range from the air to the waters under the earth, being found even on the ocean many miles from land, some surface-dwellers, others subaquatic, and they are miners and borers in wood, and inhabitants of the body of other animals, both within and without, man himself being tenanted by no fewer than a dozen, probably more, different species of insect parasites. Habits Insect habits cover a wider range than those of any other group, and the anatomical structure, especially of locomotive organs and mouth-parts, varies astonishingly to suit their owner's habits. It is futile to attempt to mention the habit variation at this place. Metamorphosis The fact that in many insects the growth to maturity is attended by a more or less profound alteration of the creature's form, appearance, and habits has already been mentioned. In the lowest order, the aptera, or thysanura, metamorphosis has not yet been acquired, the creature being, at the time of hatching, a miniature replica of its wingless parents. In winged forms, on the other hand, as these useful structures are confined to the adult stage, there is the change from the wingless to the winged condition. Again, in the lower orders, where no special type of larva has been evolved to meet peculiar life conditions, the metamorphosis, such as it is, may be said to be incomplete or gradual, 
for the young are readily recognized as offspring of their parents, and the wings, at first lacking, grow with successive molts until at the last they become functional. Aside from the acquirement of the power of flight, there is therefore no abrupt or decided change in the appearance of the animal. Hence the term larva, which always implies some modification or structure which the adult does not possess, cannot properly be applied to the young of these forms, and they are known as nymphs. In higher insects, where such larval characters have been acquired, there is no external trace of wings throughout the adolescent life. Then comes a remarkable stage interpolated into the life cycle, during which the insect is generally quiescent and is undergoing its profound change into the form and condition of an adult. In this, the pupa or chrysalis stage, the future external organs, antennae, wings, legs, are externally manifest, reminding one of an Egyptian mummy case upon which are molded and painted the features and something of the form of its silent occupant. The emergence from the pupa skin is almost like a resurrection, for the creature now comes forth glorified and resplendent to wing its way through the air, whereas before it was a creeping earth-born form. The several stages are egg, adolescent, adult. Where metamorphosis is gradual, egg, nymph, imago. Where metamorphosis is complete, egg, larva, pupa, imago. Flight is never acquired in existing insects before the imago state is reached, when the individual, whatever its size, is full-grown, and after which it ceases to molt. The only apparent exception to this rule is in the mayflies, ephemerida, in which the creature emerges from its aquatic home, molts, spreads some very imperfect wings, flies to the nearest support, and molts again, this time developing perfect wings with full powers of flight. This temporary flying condition is known as the pseudimago stage, and is really comparable to the last nymphal stage in other insects, wherein the wings are present and rather large, but not yet functional. Classification A brief resume of insect classification is necessary to our further study, but while specialists would divide the group into no fewer than nineteen orders, a more general grouping into nine will serve our purpose. A. With no metamorphosis. Order 1. Thysanura or Aptera. Wingless insects with the body covered with scales or hairs. Eyes either absent, simple in groups, or compound. Some run, others progress by means of a springing apparatus on the abdomen. Examples the springtails, Podura, and silverfish, Lepisma. B. With incomplete metamorphosis. Order 2. Orthoptera. Insects with two pairs of wings, of which the anterior pair are generally parchment-like, tegmina, the posterior ones membranous. Mouth mandibulate, that is, with the normal insect jaws, fitted for chewing. This order includes the earwigs, cockroaches, stick-and-leaf insects, grasshoppers, and locusts. Order 3. Pseudoneuroptera. Insects with two pairs of similar net-veined membranous wings. Mouth mandibulate. Includes the termites, or white ants, mayflies, dragonflies, etc. 
Order 4. Hemiptera. Insects in which the wings are usually present and are sometimes similar and membranous, again dissimilar, the forward pair having thickened bases and membranous extremities, which overlap, hemilytra. Mouth hostilate, i.e. sucking, consisting of a rostrum enclosing the jaws, which are modified as piercing organs. This order includes the bugs, lice, scale insects, plant lice or aphids, and cicadas. C. With complete metamorphosis. Order 5. Neuroptera. Similar to the pseudoneuroptera, except that the metamorphosis is complete. Formerly included that order under the present name. Examples, ant-lions, aphis-lions, and caddis-flies. Order 6. Lepidoptera. With two pairs of well-developed wings which are covered with scales. Mouth hostilate as adult, mandibulate as larvae. Butterflies and moths. Order 7. Coleoptera. Insects with dissimilar wings, the anterior pair being in the form of horny elytra, the posterior pair membranous. Mouth mandibulate. Beetles. Order 8. Diptera. Winged or wingless, fleas, insects. The former having but a single pair of membranous wings the hinder ones being represented by a pair of knobbed balancers or haltiers. Mouth hostilate. Here are included the flies, fleas, and certain degraded, tick-like, wingless flies. Order 9. Hymenoptera. Insects which generally possess two pairs of similar and membranous wings. Mouth mandibulate or hostilate, licking. Includes the bees, wasps, ants, gall and ichneumon parasitic flies. Adaptive Radiation of Insects Osborne's law of adaptive radiation, which was originally applied to the mammals, is equally applicable on the one hand to the reptiles and to the insects on the other. There is, however, this difference in the case of the insects, that while, as in the two vertebrate groups, the primitive stock was undoubtedly terrestrial, all of the former have passed through a volant or aerial stage, which, while it has also developed both in mammals and in reptiles, is confined to relatively few forms, none of which, once having attained it, has ever retrogressed. The insects above the aptera, therefore, are in a sense more comparable to the birds in that practically all fly, and those which do not come from a volant ancestry, and have lost their wings through specialization. On the other hand, the birds are hardly comparable to insects in the extent or range of their adaptation. Primitive Stock The simplest living insects are undoubtedly the Aptera, Thysanura, for here alone we have primarily flightless forms, shown not only by the total absence of wings within the order, but also by the simplicity of the thorax and its musculature as compared with that of the other insects, since here we find the three segments of the thorax separate and not fused. In the more generalized flying insects, the first segment, or prothorax, alone is free, whereas in the higher forms, hymenoptera, lepidoptera, diptera, all three segments are united into a firm box, wherein the wonderful motor organs reach their highest development. High authority, however, would place the ancient Paleodictyoptera in the position of the primitive stock. 
Cursorial and saltatorial adaptation. Cursorial forms are represented by the cockroaches among ancient types, and while many of their allies today have departed from the more primitive cursorial gait and have become leaping or saltatorial forms, as in the grasshoppers and crickets, speed of movement is characteristic of both. Among the orthoptera, the cursorial gait was prevalent during the Paleozoic, leaping forms being unknown before Lower Jurassic Lias time. Among the ancient cursors, more than 200 species of roaches have been described from the Paleozoic, some of them of gigantic size. Certain beetles, notably the ground beetles, Carabidae, and the tiger beetles, or Cicindelidae, are cursorial. The latter especially are the most agile of all beetles, and are not only swift of foot, but are also able to fly well. They are gracefully formed and beautifully colored, and as one would expect, are predaceous forms of high economic value through their destruction of noxious insects. The ground beetles are a large group, almost all of which are predaceous in habits, either springing upon their prey or capturing them by chase. Many of the hymenoptera are also speedy, especially the true ants and the so-called velvet ants, mutilidae, which are in reality wasps. Here the male flies, but the female is wingless, very swift in her movements, a powerful stinger, and warningly coloured in scarlet and black. The true ants, which, with the exception of the sexed individuals, have also lost the power of flight, make up for it by the rapidity of their movements. Speed adaptation is shown in all of these forms, by the graceful bodies and slender limbs, in sharp contrast to certain of their non-cursorial allies, such, for instance, as the heavy-bodied boring and scaraboid beetles, and the bumblebees. Fossorial Adaptation Fossorial insects are many, some digging for retreat, as in many wasps and bees, others merely for nest-building, to provide safe asylum for the eggs and helpless young. Others, like the larvae of the leaf-chafers, june-bug or may-beetle, etc., are entirely subterranean, and as white grubs take a substantial underground toll of the farmer's crops. The fossorial insect par excellence, however, is the mole-cricket, grillotelpa, which in its habits and appearance simulates quite closely the common garden-mole. The body, while long and rather slender for a cricket, is on the whole spindle-shaped, the small head forming a good entering angle, offering but little obstruction to passage through the soil. The forelimbs in particular are mole-like, broadened, the tibia being expanded and spined in such a way as to be most effective digging organs. In their broad sidewise sweep they resemble the mole's hands in action, and, like the mammal, the cricket's movements can be detected as he progresses just beneath the surface. Aquatic Adaptation There are many different adaptations to aquatic life among insects, some of which apply only to the adolescent life, others to the entire insect career, and the adaptations include not only locomotor devices, but special respiratory structures, whereby what are primarily air-breathing forms have become able to utilize the air dissolved in the water. These structures, as we shall see, are of greater significance than their present use implies, for it is believed that out of such structures the insect wing evolved. 
In the more generalized insects, whose young are aquatic, this adaptation may perhaps be looked upon as a primitive condition, for it was also true of the ancient Paleodictyoptera. Among the flies, on the other hand, it may well be a secondary adaptation. There is apparently no insect aquatic as an adult only. Of the aquatic modifications, the first to be considered is the means of respiration. As we have seen, the respiratory organs of the spiders, myriapods, and insects consist of branching air-tubes known as tracheae, which have their origin in symmetrically arranged apertures, the stigmata, through which free air is admitted to the system. There are generally a pair of principal longitudinal trunks from which short tubes pass to the stigmata. From them there also arise other branches, which divide and divide again until they end in tubes of capillary fineness, which are found in all of the tissues of the body. Usually among animals the blood, or its equivalent, is the oxygen-carrying medium, receiving it from the respiratory organs, external respiration, and delivering it to the tissues, internal respiration, the oxygen being carried in chemical union with an iron compound, hemoglobin, in which case the blood is red, or with a compound of copper, hemocyanin, which gives a faint bluish tinge, or none at all, to the blood. With the tracheates, the blood has no respiratory function, or at most but a very rudimentary one, the air being carried bodily, wherever it is needed by the tracheal tubes, which, in common with other respiratory devices, are merely a complicated infolding of the body wall. Aquatic insects breathe by one of two general means, either by air reservoirs or by tracheal gills. In certain insects which, like the water bugs or water beetles, are aquatic throughout their life, the abdomen is flattened on its dorsal surface, but the forward wings are arched in such a way that a space of considerable size is left into which the tracheae open. The insect, which requires but little air compared with a vertebrate, comes to the surface from time to time, protrudes the end of its abdomen, raises the wing-tip slightly, and thus renews the air in its reservoir. But the young of these same insects have no wings, so another method must be adopted to take the place of the reservoir, and this is done by having the body clothed with hair, in which air becomes entangled, being separated from the surrounding water by the so-called capillary film in the form of an air bubble. From time to time the insect can come to the surface and renew the air, but in well-aerated water this is not so necessary as with the winged form, for oxygen passes inward and carbonic acid gas outward through the capillary film by osmosis, that process by which gases or other substances on either side of a film or membrane are equalized. Tracheal gills are leaf or hair-like outward extensions of the body wall, arising from a stigma, the trachea being continued into them and branching out like the veins of a leaf. The air within is now in osmotic relationship with the surrounding water which bathes the gill and as before the mutual exchange of gases is effected. Respiratory movements keep up an interchange of air from the gills to the bodily tracheae and by the rhythmic waving of the former or by motions of the insect's body the water immediately surrounding the gill is renewed. 
In the mayfly nymphs, the gills are arranged in pairs along the sides of the abdomen, a pair to each of the several stigmata. In the stoneflies, they lie, as they rarely do, on the sides of the thorax, at the base of the limbs. In the smaller dragonflies, agrioninae, the gills are leaf-like expansions, born at the end of the body. These subserve not only their prime function of respiration, but as a caudal fin, the secondary one of locomotion as well. The larger dragonflies, libellulinae, differ in not having external gills, but an internal one, in that the rectum, the posterior portion of the alimentary canal, with its walls filled with tracheae, functions as such. Here rhythmic contraction and relaxation of the muscles causes a tidal ebb and flow of water through the anal aperture, bringing the fresh supply of oxygen and removing the effete material. Incidentally, this structure also becomes a locomotor organ, for the forcible expulsion of the water from the rectum drives the creatures forward by a method of jet propulsion comparable to that seen in the squid. The combination of respiratory and locomotive function in the tracheal gill is significant, as these structures, especially such as are seen in the mayfly nymphs, are thought to represent the prototype of the insect wing. Aside from the breathing devices, the body and limbs also show aquatic modifications, especially when the creature is nectonic. In a bottom-clinging form, no special aquatic adaptation is necessary, but the predaceous diving beetles, and the back-swimmers and water-boatmen among the bugs, show more or less physical conformity to the needs of the environment, with neatly curved bodies which bear no unnecessary projections. They do not perhaps follow the numerical lines to the extent that the fishes do, but sufficiently so for small, not over-swift craft. The limbs often show oar-like expansions, whose extent is sometimes increased by lateral fringes of hair. Propulsion, if not by tracheal gills or the rectum, is invariably by means of the limbs, and as among aquatic reptiles and mammals, when this is the case, the rate of speed is necessarily limited. Perhaps the larger dragonfly nymphs, which sweep the limbs backward simultaneously with the drive of the rectal jet, are among the most rapid insect swimmers for a short distance. Add to this a remarkable extensile labium for grasping their prey, and their efficiency is as great in its way as that of the magnificent adult. The nymphs are generally protectively coloured, so that their quick dart from obscurity must make them highly successful in the struggle for existence. Among the most interesting of aquatic insects are the caddisworms, larvae of the caddis flies, and belonging to the true neuroptera, yet probably ancestrally related to the butterflies and moths as well. The adult is a small nocturnal insect of sombre hue, looking when at rest not unlike a night-flying moth. The wings are clothed with hairs, not scales, as in the Lepidoptera, but these scales are in turn modified hairs, which among other things makes the above-mentioned relationship plausible. The larvae are caterpillar-like, the elongated abdomen being decked with tufts of hair-like tracheal gills. Instead of exposing its tender body to the vicissitudes of aquatic life, the creature makes for itself a tubular house within which it lives, and from which its head and limb thorax may be protruded for locomotive purposes. 
these houses vary in building material as well as in architectural design being formed of tiny bits of twigs or leaves or of sand grains or even minute pebbles the twigs sometimes laid lengthwise again after the manner of a pioneer's log cabin the creatures themselves are carnivorous and occasionally spin a web like a tiny fisherman's net athwart the current of the stream and lie in wait as a spider does for such unfortunates as chance provides for food end of chapter 27a recording by lisa reichert